I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author Doug McIntyre. His new book is Frank's Shadow. Newlywed Danny McKenna's honeymoon ends abruptly when he learns his father has died uncannily on the same day as his hero, Frank Sinatra. Returning home to his naughty Irish-American family, Danny is confronted with a painful truth. While he knows everything about the famous singer, his own father is a mystery. Tasked with giving a eulogy for a man he hardly knows, Danny sets out to uncover his dad's past, an immigrant's tale of mid-century America and the harsh realities of World War II, lived in stark contrast to Frank Sinatra's famously extravagant life. Along the way, Danny's own demons nearly destroy him as he struggles to accept his father's deepest secret, a journey that takes him into the heart of darkness before he learns to live in the light. Doug McIntyre's novel is a poignant exploration of identity, family, and the ways in which the lives of celebrities intersect with our own. He's a longtime newspaper columnist, former radio host, and has written for all the major networks, including the hit series Married with Children, WKRP in Cincinnati, Full House, and also the award-winning PBS series Liberty's Kids. And he's also hosted a very successful radio show on WABC, NYC. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Doug. It's a pleasure, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So you've given, you've done all of those, you've done all of it, right? Radio shows, producing shows, and and now this is your first book, a novel. I guess my first question is, this is how does this novel does it reflect your own life in any way, or how much does it reflect on you? I, you know, I always some people write novels, some people write memoirs, but sometimes they sort of intersect, and there's a lot. Well, I think that there's yeah. always. In fiction, I think it's always infused to a degree with your own life experiences. Uh, I have described this as not factually autobiographical, but it's uh, psychologically and emotionally autobiographical in the sense that it reflects sort of the a, a highly dramatized and embellished uh, replication of the path that I lived personally. Uh, and there's some touch points in that I grew up in an Irish-American family, and this is an Irish-American family, uh, and I grew up in eastern Queens, uh, New York, so these are settings and locales that I was very aware of. But in terms of the actual incidents, with the exception of Chapter 1, which details the last performance of Frank Sinatra in New York, uh, the rest of it is fiction in terms of the actual sequence of events and what happens in those events. Okay, the specifics of those secrets are not your secrets, but does, uh, you know, I'm I'm curious about, you know, you said Irish-American family, there's a lot, there are similarities. What about the secrets in your families? Are there any parallels in terms of that in the book? No, I don't think so, except for I believe that I grew up in a home, and and as I've been out uh, talking about the book a lot, a lot of people have confirmed my premise, that a lot of families keep secrets from each other that uh, we are afraid often to be candid with our loved ones for fear of either being judged or rejected or some way shamed for it. And it, and it is, in fact, a shame. You know, uh, my, my mother just passed away last Saturday, and uh, she had a good life. She was 91 years old. We were all with her. And immediately, I started to regret all the things that should have been asked and said 
while she was still with us. And that list will go grow longer and longer and longer. And I think that my lead character, Danny McKenna, in the Frank Shadow, is plagued by that because his greatest generation, World War II veteran father, who is an Irish immigrant, is a very uh, closed-lipped person. He wasn't accessible. And as a result, when he dies, and he goes back home to bury his dad, he realizes that he knows everything about this famous celebrity who he never met, Frank Sinatra. Nothing of real substance about his own dad. It's a source of great frustration for him. I think that's a big issue, and I think it uh, it's interesting. I mean, I have a mother who is 100 years old. <laughs> who keeps saying she can't believe she's 100 years old. I can't believe it either. But she, I had, and for all those, I, I think of things all the time. I should have asked her this. I, she can't remember a lot of the things now as well. And and they're gone. They're lost in the past. Uh, and uh, But I did, one of my sons actually did an interview with her 10 years ago. And so there was a lot of information that we got from that, uh, and uh, which was a good thing. But it's true. And But secrets, family secrets, they dominate people's, everyone's behavior within the family. And most, most families have, and my experience as a social worker, families have secrets. There's always a secret that, that, um, and when you learn, yeah. What well, this, listen, yeah. Fran- Francis Xavier McKenna's secret, the father in my book. That secret held me up for twenty years. This book, uh, actually, Catherine, was literally born on May fourteenth, nineteen ninety-eight, the night that Sinatra died, which completely coincidentally was the last night of Seinfeld. Yeah. The whole country was talking about the last episode of Seinfeld, and then the news flashed that Frank Sinatra had died. And then everybody pivoted and was talking about that. Well, as it turns out, I had a good friend of mine whose father died the same night. Struck me that one life is satellite news ricocheting around the globe, and the other guy's in the back of the paper by the mattress ads and uh, racing results, and you had to pay to put them there. The book that started out as sort of a. I've worked with many, many, many famous people, both as an MC for a distinguished speaker series, everybody from President Bush to Betty White, uh, Jane Fonda, and Lily Tomlin, you name it. Uh, and. Uh, and uh, my work as a television writer-producer and on the radio uh, for all those years, I encountered a lot of famous people. So I was fascinated in the subject, the hierarchy of how we value lives. Even when that submarine went down, going to the Titanic, and five people tragically lost in this adventure, and yet somehow it was the Titanic, and that brought us to Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie. And meanwhile, there are migrants dying in the Mediterranean trying to escape dire situations in North Africa every day, and they're completely invisible to us. So uh, uh, the book started on just that theme. I needed at some point to uncover a big secret that the father took with him to the grave, and everything that I came up with was stolen or awful or both. Uh, it was uh, it, it, it just the book ground to a halt for 20 years. Uh, so it wasn't until you know, six, seven years ago the light bulb finally went off, and then I jumped back in. And now finally, after 25 years, the book is uh, is in print. So I'm very excited about that. Well, congratulations. How And uh, I guess, how, so now, you know, this is a long time coming. And so how we value lives, I mean, that's the question. That's what you're talking about in writing the book and exploring all of those issues how did it change you or did it or did you learn something about yourself that was different after you finished or you know that you didn't know about yourself or weren't aware and 
when you finish the novel? I, I think so. It's interesting. Uh, I think that when I was younger, and certainly around the time that this book, uh, I began this book in 1998, I was really still burning with ambition, with this innate sense that I'm supposed to be doing big things with my life. And this is where the book is autobiographical emotionally and psychologically. My lead character, Danny McKenna, has that same yearning. And by the end of the book, she learns to live in the present rather than chasing, wallowing in the past or chasing some theoretical future. And I really do feel like now that the book exists in the world, I've been absolved of that ambition. Nothing wrong with ambition. Ambition's a great thing. And it takes a disproportionate role in your life. I think you can make a lot, you can lose out on a lot of the most important things in life while you're chasing somebody else's opinion of you. So, yes, I, I think that I think that I did uh, experience a catharsis by writing the book, a personal catharsis, and hopefully the audience can identify with this, the readers to at least the early returns are positive, and I hope that that's what uh, the bulk of the readers feel. Done with it. But, Doug, but you say absolved of ambition. However, if you take a look at, like, listen to my, or if anyone listened to my intro about you, think, I mean, all of those things that you've accomplished. So you have been an ambitious person. Most people don't even come near to accomplishing, say, what you've accomplished or made the connections with all of the things that, you know, in the industry and the TV and film and movies and, and uh, radio. And so you have been successful. And then so people will, you know, you can say, well, okay, so now you can say, well, now I don't have to be ambitious anymore, but you've already done it. Well, I, you know, I think there's a time to get off the stage. And and uh, frequently people struggle with that. Yeah, and now, I, you know, I was very blessed that I was able to make a living in, in uh, professions that I genuinely enjoyed. Frankly, things that I did for free. I mean, I was writing when I was 10. It was a hobby. It was just and I liked, I liked the experience of it. So, and somehow I managed to, you know, follow my bliss, as that expression goes, and managed to get to this age, having been able to make a life doing it. A lot of people don't have that luxury to end up in, in, in jobs that they, that sometimes that they hate. And I always thought that that's a tragedy, that, uh, you know, I understand people do things for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but there are even people who have very successful careers in terms of material success, uh, and, and they, that becomes their identity. And then the economy shifts, and all of a sudden they're kicked to the curb, and then what do they have to lean on? When your identity becomes so wrapped up in your work, then I think it becomes an unhealthy relationship. And you've given a lot of power away to the people in your audience or to lawyers. And, and that definitely changed for me over time. When I retired from radio at the end of 2018, I was perfectly content to never be on the air again. I felt like I had 25 years of blabbing every day. You can hear right now, I'm a motor mouth. I had no trouble filling the five hours that I was on the air. I felt like I had said everything that I needed to say, and it was okay to be quiet for a while. And, uh, and to me, I found it to be totally liberal. 
Well, you know what? I think that there's some people you need to talk to. We have some people in government. It's time to get off the stage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to get off the stage. Our it's over. government is being run by people who don't know how to get off the stage. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a great comment. And I, <laughs> they need you. Maybe that's your next calling. But uh, Well, you, you know, gotta... and one of the things about that, really, on that point, I mean, I, 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 I live in, in California, and we have a, an elderly senator, Diana Flanson, that took a fall today, and it's sad. She's, she actually had to sign over uh, a power of attorney to her daughter because she's not competent to make these decisions for herself, and yet she's still voting on the floor of the United States Senate. Now, yeah. where does that come from? Well, a lot of it comes from this around her whose power is totally wrapped up for being there. If she leaves, then the next senator is going to bring in different staff. So there's this kind of sick culture that keeps propelling people forward frankly, past the practical expiration date. And, uh, you know, uh, that's why I say it's okay to leave the stage. It's okay to get off the stage. It's an old show business action. Leave them wanting more. And, and we tend not to do that. Yeah. Uh, that's true. And as you're right, the people who surround them, I mean, we don't have to get into politics, but I'm thinking, you know, we've got two people running for president who are going to be perhaps 80 years old. I mean, that's... Uh, anyway, let's not... <laughs> Just trying yeah, to get know, off the I stage. Know. I, yeah. I, you're, your point taken, accepted, moving on. <laughs> okay, yeah. Let's get back to the how we value lives. You know, it's interesting because uh, uh, I think about that a lot, as many people do. And, uh, you know, we, I th- you meant, you know, Frank Sinatra, famous. He's all over the front pages when he dies. This is in your novel. But, you know, the character who's not famous, just an ordinary guy, is not. And you mentioned the Titanic Um and I had that conference, you know, about the, the, the people in the capsule who died. How many? There were four or five? Four? Five, yeah. Yeah, five. I guess there were five people. And I had this conversation, actually, with one of my sons uh, who made the same comment that you did. I mean, these five people, their lives are important. But what all, what about all of the, the, the migrants on that boat who weren't saved? And there were hundreds. And yes, that's terrible. Another piece of that, though, that came out, I think, later uh, after this actually this topic was discussed was that all of the equipment, I guess, and all the instruments and all the personnel they use to save these guys are things that they do uh, as uh, routinely to practice being able to save people in this, you know, in this uh, in these kinds of conditions. And so this was like. It wasn't a practice, but it was a. Pra- it, it was something that they would do and have to pay for, and just when they're doing practice runs, and then in this case, obviously, they were saving these five people. There was another piece to it, I guess, is what I'm saying, and um, I hadn't thought about that until I, don't know, I read some article about it. But um, so there was another layer to it, I guess. Yeah, well, that's that's part of the. Uh, bizarre nature of human existence, that we go through extraordinary lengths to save lives with medevac helicopters and microsurgery and just astonishing, heroic actions that people take to save lives. And then we cavalierly throw them away with drive-by shootings and fentanyl overdoses. It's People are just complicated. And that's kind of what my book is about, because it's about family, and families are really complicated. It's like, why do we feel, when a celebrity dies, when Frank Sinatra dies, when Tina Turner dies, 
Pee Wee Herman just died, and he was so formative to so many people's childhoods. And they really feel that loss. They feel actual pain of loss, even though they may never have met that person. I think it's likely they never met that person. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is for an artist of any kind to be good at what they do, they have to move us emotionally. If they don't make us laugh as a comedian, if they move us musically as a, as a musician or singer, they don't be dramatic as an actor, then or, or a painting doesn't speak to us, then they've failed in their art. But if they can do those things, they have tapped into that most human of things, which is our feelings. And sometimes our family uh, irritates us. You know, uh, Tina Turner didn't irritate us. She didn't ask us for money. She didn't uh, show up drunk at Thanksgiving. So all of the foibles that we experience in our own lives, in our own homes, with our loved ones, with our family members... Celebrities have this sort of exalted hierarchy, hierarchical place in society where they just please us. And if they don't please us, we can turn them off. You can't turn off Uncle Carl when he's going into Bristol Cream at Thanksgiving and he won't stop talking politics. You know, that's a strange kind of really modern dynamic that didn't exist really until network radio came along in the 1920s and we invented this thing called celebrities performing celebrities. Before that, music in the house was Helen playing the organ. True. But don't we have God, you know, we we pray going back, let's say before the celebrities, the celebrities now, but there was always that, all of us, the masses, we liked our kings and queens and and, until we didn't. But uh, there was always that need. I think that same need has always been there and it's kind of in the human condition. I mean, it's it's um, it plays out differently now, like you're saying. But we've always kind of needed that kind of adoration. And then that sort of group, you know, when they die or when something horrific happens and we feel bad, um, we express this i think that those kinds of expressions have always been that we we need that maybe um well i think i think that's true certainly uh the the shenanigans going on at the castle were a common gossip but now it's relentless because the technology is relentless and we're marinated in it and i remember uh, this has got to be 20 years ago catherine uh paris hilton had a boyfriend whose name was also Paris. Now, I did not seek this information out. It just was, it was, uh, you know, on the tablet covers at the checkout line at the grocery store. It was just in the atmosphere, and I just, I didn't wake up one day knowing how to play the piano, anything of practical utility, but I was walking around knowing that Paris Hilton had a boyfriend whose name was also Paris. So that's how ubiquitous Liberty culture has become where now we've got it in our phones and it's constantly being fed to us 24 hours a day and we've become addicted to it. Yeah, we have become addicted to it and uh, we're becoming more addicted to it, I guess. I mean, you look at, uh, I'm thinking about TikTok. I mean, some of these, um, yeah. yeah, you've got what, millions and millions of people who are addicted to it or addicted to these uh, stars, especially with the teenagers. Um, these stars. So, okay, so we're doing that. So, where does that? So, what does that mean for us? What? What? You know, well, just in terms it, of it, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating because uh, along the way, there was a time when fame 
There was fame and there was infamy. George Washington was famous because of his high achievements, his contribution to the creation of the country. Uh, and Benedict Arnold was infamous for his betrayal. But we divorced fame uh, from actual accomplishment. I mean, there, Frank Sinatra was a great musical artist, an icon, icon for, a, for a reason. His music will never be the, as popular as it once was, but it will survive as it's proven over 25 years. It's still out there, still growing. People discover it. Uh, Billie Eilish was singing Peggy Lee songs at the Hollywood Bowl in the spring, so we saw Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett pick up the torch and carry it. But we also have influencers, and we have the whole reality show star, the whole Kardashian effect, if you will, where we've taken people who actually don't sing, don't dance, they don't tell jokes, they don't write, they don't do anything except exist and have access to media and become enormously successful with people with hundreds of millions of followers on social media, and they don't actually, they haven't rehearsed anything. So that's a kind of, if you will, we've democratized fame to the point where you could be famous for just being famous. Yeah, we're... We're always curious, though. We love to see how other people live. <laughs> and that gives us access to the Kardashians and Paris Hilton and those who don't necessarily have any talent in, you know, music or art or theater. But we do want to see how we, we do want to kind of hone in on people's lives. And that, I mean, and that does it for us. And then we can walk away from it because it doesn't affect us at all. Uh, we like gossip. Well, that's exactly the point. That's exactly yeah. the point of the book, Catherine, is that we can have that vicarious look into someone else's lives, and yet we don't necessarily talk to our mom and dad or our grandparents or our brothers and sisters and say, hey, what, what's your life like? What's going on? We, you know, I mean, to really probe, not the, not the superficial stuff that's obviously in front of us. And that's what's weird about it. We, we, we'll read tabloid stuff, 800-page biography. I think uh, Barbara Streisand has a book that just got cut under 1,000 pages that's coming out shortly. And people will devour that, fans of Barbara Streisand. But the only thing about Barbara Streisand is we can live our whole lives under the same roof with people, and they can go to their grave as real strangers. Those are my favorite kinds of books, biographies, autobiographies, um, and and memoirs um, for the reasons that you've been talking about or that we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, so now I, I would say to you, maybe the next, this is your first book. The next book perhaps should be a memoir. Well, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure since it took me 25 years to finish this one, whatever is said about me, Catherine prolific is probably not going to be one. <laughs> One of them when it comes to books. Well, uh, you might have 25 and, you know, years, but you, yeah, you've had the experience, so you don't have to take another 25 years. You can cut it down a little bit. I hope not, because I feel yeah. like 180 by the time it comes out. <laughs> you might live that long. Uh, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got some stories that uh, I've got another, uh, I'm just starting to, you know, think about what next. Frank Shadow, after all these years, is now, it's out in the world, and obviously um, I'm out here encouraging people to go check it out. But uh, I'm also looking over the horizon now at, uh, at what am I going to do next? Because, like I said, I've been I've been writing stuff really since I was ten, so it's just kind of at this point habitual. So I will inevitably start some other project, and I have a couple of story ideas that I'm starting to noodle around on and see if I can 
and turn into something, uh, including some nonfiction work that I want to do. I'd like to do a biography of the Wright brothers and some things like that. But, uh, but this was uh, a real learning curve for me. Like I said, I all those other genres, and it was liberating and, and instructive to finally uh, finish a long-form piece of fiction because it's very different work than it is when you're writing for television or film or, or even the newspaper column that I've done for all these years because it's uh, you're unlimited uh, in two hours. It can be as long as it's physically possible to put between covers. And you can go into a character's head and 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 give the reader and let them think along the inner thoughts of the character. It's very hard to do in a television series or in film. It can yeah. be done, but it's really hard to do. Yeah, you have to show different. rather than... Yeah, a very different genre. I hate to cut you off. We've got a couple minutes left. So author Doug McIntyre, Frank Shadow is the title of the book. But um, Doug, so tell us where we can get the book and uh also website or websites uh to give us more well information it's, it's about available you. at barnes and, and noble uh and it also amazon of course because everything in the world is on amazon mm-hmm. and uh my website is doug mcintyre.com it's m-c-i-n-t-y-r-e.com and you can get actually signed copies uh through the website if that's what you like and some people like to collect those great thank you so much for being on the show today it was great. It was my pleasure, Catherine. Yes, Thank yeah. you for having me. Good luck with the book. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> 